and welcome back to Now Screaming, episode 102. I'm Evan Culbertson. And I'm Liz Smart. And we're watching all the horror movies currently available for streaming on the internet. So you don't have to. It is officially the kickoff of spooky season. Yes, best time of the year. And we know we rolled American Mary on the roulette, but some unforeseen circumstances have taken us in another direction. And we are instead doing the 1976 uh, film about difficult children, (laughs) The Omen. The Omen. And with us, we have two experts on that very topic, our mothers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this is my mother. This is Susan Smart. She raised me. Uh, (laughs) Hello. Happy to be here. (laughs) Well, we always ask our guests, um, what's your favorite scary movie? I would say The Exorcist. That's a very good one. It's a solid one. I remember you telling me about it when I was little. Your experiences in the theater and everything. We also have with us my mother, Catherine Bradford. Hello. What's your favorite scary movie? I don't really have one, but I have some scary movie memories that scared the bejeebers out of me. (laughs) So that's probably why I'm not a big fan of the genre. Yes, I think actually you would say the same, wouldn't you? you're not a big fan of horror either i'm not um although i there's so many movies that i love that you all classify as horror i didn't necessarily so maybe i don't know the true definition (laughs) of horror but like sixth sense and signs and jaws and yeah i think there's an interesting uh generational debate about what uh constitutes horror and we've talked about it on the podcast in the past that Liz and I are big tent horror people, that yes. we are very inclusive about what we define as horror. We've covered plenty of things on this podcast that I think a lot of people would dispute our horror right. with us. <laughs> the psychological thriller and the creature feature, those sorts of things. Uh, but you did raise two horror-loving children, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite my best efforts. <laughs> so, 1976's The Omen, directed by Richard Donner is available on Hulu. And we decided to do this for its... Parenthood themes? Parental themes? Yeah. yeah. We, we did the, the Babadook earlier on this podcast. Yes. And a similar film about a child that you just don't know what to do with. And <laughs> it seemed the I perfect... I think Damien's more well-behaved than the child in the Babadook. The child in the Babadook it's is a nightmare. far more demonic, if you ask me. Agreed. Let's go around the table and, and everyone's relationship with this movie. So I've seen this movie before. Obviously, it's a classic it has probably been 10 years since the last time I watched it. And I've seen none of the sequels. I don't remember if I've seen this movie, to be honest. I think I have. I've definitely read the book, which I only just learned is a novelization of the movie that was mm-hmm. just released promotionally, which is just blew my mind. Um, but I have such fa- strong memories of, I was about to say fond, not fond, strong memories of reading the book uh, that I'm not sure. There was. It's so similar, obviously, that I was like, do I remember this scene with the graveyard and the dog? Or do I just remember reading it? So I think I've seen it, but I'm not 100% sure. So this may have been the first time for me. I saw it when it came out in theaters in 1976. And I remember specifically thinking I would like it because I liked The Exorcist. Right. But I didn't like it. I didn't think it was very good. Um, And then looking into it a little further... 1976 was an exceptional year for movies. So, like, All the President's Men and Carrie and Rocky and Taxi Driver, Marathon Man, 
network. <laughs> you know. So The Omen was a disappointment right. because it was amongst really wonderful movies. That's fair. So I, th I think that's why I didn't like it. And also, having viewed it now, um, I just don't think it's that good. I would agree. I don't think it's that good. I don't recall the first time that I saw it because I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I saw Omen 2 in theaters. And I actually really, I recall loving that, uh, the juxtaposition of the, the two kids that are in it. Um, but I, I've seen the Omen two or three times now before this. Hmm. And I think it's really dumb and campy and... <laughs> Um, but Omen 2, I have fonder memories of. I was That's thinking funny. that as we were watching it, that, oh yeah, I, I thought that was Omen 1, but it was really Omen 2. Hell That's yeah. Funny. I've never seen the Omen 2. I love that. I love this take that I didn't know. <laughs> that rocks. Uh, we can get into quality a little bit. I would agree, Susan, that, um, especially compared to the other films of 1976, I don't think this is quite up to snuff. I also think that it's a riff on several better movies that precede it. Um, the Exorcist, obviously, but also Rosemary's Baby mm -hmm. and even like the political thrillers, the Pakula thrillers of and the 70s. Bad like, Seed kind of almost, right? Bad Seed? Yeah. I've seen people compare this a lot to Bad Seed. Oh. Mm. I was thinking like, there's a big political element to this. So like the parallax view. Mm. Obviously this isn't a political thriller, but like the fear that something insidious is going to specifically attack the American America, government yeah, that's is very such true. an early mid seventies. It was just in the air. Um, kind of timeless now though, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it just feels to me, I think this is a fine movie. It is of course a classic for reasons. And I think that that ultimately is a few great scenes in a fine movie. Yeah, I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to be the outlier here and I'm going to say, I actually really enjoyed it. I had a good time. I think it's definitely riffing off The Exorcist, and there's no question which is the, the winner and the better movie and more culturally, you know, significant. Um, but it did a few things that I think uh, were in reaction to it that I actually enjoyed. Like, specifically, there is no question of the supernatural element of The Exorcist. It is deeply supernatural, yeah. there's no question. This movie was trying a lot harder to play with the idea of just paranoia and... Um, psychosis of just like Damien doesn't do anything in this movie that's that bad that a child couldn't do he is like influenced by adults and there's times when you're like oh is he he's at worst negligent negligent and yeah and like uncaring what you know when he when he's driving his little yeah. uh, toy car and hits his mother um you're like oh was that on purpose but there's nothing really to suggest that it wasn't an accident and so that's very tough that like they were trying harder in this movie to to ask the question is he actually the son of the devil you know and i don't think the the, the movie actually ever answers it it's it's a lot of coincidences and a lot of um zoom ins on dogs faces exactly <laughs> and i didn't think that i mean here Gregory Peck is it's going to kill his son yeah and i don't think he had that much proof no he talked about it but he didn't really have that much proof and i think it's really interesting that he said this little child was just a vehicle you know for, for these all these adults all yeah. these adults like potentially exactly. their psychosis yeah but i thought it was just the the writing was not that good that you know it, he kind of rushed into it to me like, sure 
I mean, I think that that's like, um, it begs the question of whether or not there's enough reason for him to be suspicious from the whole situation. Like, is this an anti-adoption movie, right? <laughs> that's like, oh, you better be careful when you have these, you know, closed door adoptions at this hospital. You don't know whose child you're getting or what's happening. But that like, I think that that moment at the end when he's in the church about to kill Damien, I'm almost like rooting for Damien. I'm like, someone come save yeah. this child. Yeah. Well, and whether or not that's yeah. bad writing because I don't, we're, we don't ever really believe that he's that dangerous or whether that's really intentional, I think is the question. And he flips so quickly. Oh, he's not my child. Like you, when you adopt a child, they be they are your child. Yeah. I also want to say, I don't know that Gregory that. Peck really wins me over in this. I think that he's a little mm-hmm. bit phoning it in. Um, I also recently watched, he's Ahab in the John Huston Moby Dick. And he also kind of is really wrong for that. So this is two stinkers from Peck in a row for me. The other, the alternate casting for, for Robert Thorne is so interesting. I don't there's know if this two. is trivia. There's a, there's more than a, a there's few. There's two that I saw that were very interesting to me. Uh, Warner Brothers originally thought that Oliver Reed would be a good fit, which is fun because he's also the patriarch in Cronenberg's The Brood a few years later, and I think he's mm-hmm. great in that. They tried to get Charlton Heston on board. They tried to get William Holden on board. Both of them turned it down. They considered Roy Scheider. They considered... Dick, Dick Van, Van Dyke. Dyke. I knew that was, oh and he is like, <laughs> and he said, turning it down was a mistake. Now he's like, Dyke? biggest mistake of my career, Dick Van Dyke. I wonder what yeah. he would have done with the role, right? Because obviously he, would, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have played it broad, right? Like he's not an idiot. No, can you imagine him with like his cockney accent just coming in and like, Damien, <laughs> what are you doing, Damien? Uh, and apparently Charles Bronson was also offered the role, which is a very different movie. That's an action movie. Yeah, that's fascinating. I would vote for William Holden. Yeah. I could so see that. I could see Charlton Heston. I think Charlton Heston oh. would have been very good. He didn't want to be in a film about the devil. William Holden was like, no, that's not for me. Charlton Heston apparently didn't want to uh, spend the winter shooting in Europe. He was like, this isn't a <laughs> job just, that I, I want. I just had a hard time Charlton Heston after Soylent Green. I could never take him seriously again. <laughs> <laughs> so, usually we do a plot recap, but I think that one, I think the omen is so well known and two, we've already skipped ahead to the end. <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> so one of the ways we can approach this is, is talking about the different elements of it. Uh, the score is by Jerry Goldsmith, who is an icon in, mm-hmm. in, in composition. Um, and he won an Oscar for it. For this, this film, won Best Original Score at the Oscars, which is fascinating. It's is Goldsmith's it, only win. Is, it's Goldsmith's only win. Is it the only horror score to win? That's interesting. I have no idea. That's what I saw. I, I'll, I'm going to do some <laughs> some research to make sure that's true. You can circle back to that. Uh, I did see that somewhere, but, you know, I'm that's super interesting. Is. I think, I will say, I think the score is really strong. Not necessarily the theme um, itself, the chanting, the very famous horror theme, I think is okay. And pales in comparison again to something like The Exorcist, which is, you know, so much more iconic. But I think that the, the interstitial music throughout, it's so garish. It's so um, brash and loud and overpowering of these scenes that I think it lends the film a camp quality that the film itself should have leaned into more. I think that the score nails the tone of what the movie should have been better than the movie does. Yeah, because it's not really camp. No. It's not leaning enough into fun uh, 70s horror. But I might like the score of this movie more than I like the movie itself. Mm. I thought it got in the way. You know, the violins in the beginning were so strong at a time where you should be absorbing yeah. 
you know what the the drama that's happening instead you you know you, so you're overwhelmed with these violins so i think it did i think i i, I agree that it's not in service of the movie you know as a piece of as a piece of composition as music i really like it i like the chanting also I don't know what it is. That's I don't. I can't even remember what either of you guys are talking about with the scar. <laughs> All I hear in my mind is like the Ave, Sunny, like whatever. It's so I think it's great. It uh, that to me like is actually the tone where it's like a little, maybe a little silly, but mostly like very dark and demonic, and you know. I think it's interesting because. That they sort of underplayed the chanting and overplayed the violins. Yeah, that's fair. Like the the violins just added like melodrama. Yeah. Um. And and the chanting though is going to bring back that ancient you know. Yes. The devil. And, and it is quite melodramatic. I think that the um the romantic relationship between the uh the thorns is very soapy. They don't really come across as like. A real couple. You're too sexy <laughs> for the White House. Love. Yeah, too sexy for the White House. I don't know if I can forgive uh, Gary Peck for that line, like, oh, Kathy, 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 Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that the score was somewhat forgettable. Yeah. I really, I really didn't like it. And I found the chanting really jarring. Um, in the Latin and brought in lots of religious overtone and, you know, made me keep thinking about the priest and what the priest's role in this and what were they thinking were some back door that this adoption somehow originated in that church with the priest and mm -hmm. Satan somehow had infiltrated the church or you know what in the world were they trying to get to there um i kept thinking about over and over who is ultimately behind getting this demon spawn into the family yeah mm. i think that it's it's definitely vague and it's kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier about like is it vague for a reason to allow us to as an audience be like well wait who is orchestrating all of this is this all just some Random people deciding that this is the exorcist? I think that ambiguity oh, the is... Exorcist. Uh, the Antichrist? I think that ambiguity is, like, again, in service of the early, mid-70s political thriller thing, right? It's yeah. who's who's behind the strings, who's pulling... Who's the puppet master here? And just the paranoia, right, that's just, like, seeping out in terms of... Uh, it is, like, is it Father Spolero? Is it someone, like, there's a cult here, but it's it's ill-defined. Yeah, in Rosemary's Baby... This is Baylock. She has arrived. This is the nanny, yeah. the new nanny. She has been sent from someone. Someone right. sent her to be the nanny for this child. But we're not clear who. It's not as defined a cult as something, like, in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This yeah. is the group. Uh, it's very, like, vague. And it's international. I mean, again, the, the traveling to all these countries to uncover the truth behind this, like... It is amorphous and it is so background. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. And there's I mean, the, so much of this is in reaction to The Exorcist. It's really like a ton. And there's very little gore for that reason. Well. It's, besides the one. Besides the one big one. But there's very little blood. There's not a lot of showing. I mean, thinking about The Exorcist, it's a very violent gross out gory movie can we yes. talk about that real quick though before because then we'll move off of it sure david warner being decapitated with a sheet of glass from a, a truck that rolls by is for me the highlight of this film yeah i think it's tremendous it's so not what this movie's doing it's what i want this movie to be it's so giallo 
It's, it's quite so jalo and like has no place in this austere movie that it's it's seeking to be because it's so goofy and it it there's no way to do that that isn't goofy and so if you're gonna do that just lean into it with the rest of the movie right well and I, I, exorcist did that too where they had a couple of especially the the rotating head where you, you just got kind of got out of the movie for a minute yeah <laughs> you're like what am i watching you know? and like yeah. well and i think that's that's an interesting shot too because as i just said like this was this was trying to be less. Uh, it was not trying to be the Exorcist, and that it didn't want people to faint in the theaters. Like it, it was, it, it was not trying to be as over the top, like crazy as the Exorcist. But this does feel like the one moment that it was because Richard Donner did intentionally film it and edit it so that if the audience closed their eyes when that happened, once they opened them again, you'd still see his decapitated head. So that <laughs> it was, rocks. It was try. It was specifically in that one moment trying to be very campy horror of like, oh, you thought, oh, no, you're going to see the head, you know, like. <laughs> so I think that's very funny that like in this really droll, serious, uh, you know, religious chanting movie, uh, there is this one moment of like, you guys are going to see this, this crazy decapitation I love it scene. so much. Again, I wish the movie, scenes like that, I said it was a bunch of great scenes earlier, that and the it's all for you, Damien, when the first nanny jumps off the... I think it's a very exciting moment. It's a very good moment. It's an incredible scene. The way that it um, spends so much time with the crowd and their horror in realizing what's about to happen and the reaction that's happened, I think is extremely effective filmmaking. Um, you juxtapose that with only a few scenes later, they're at the zoo and animals are going crazy and it's the most boring thing I've ever watched. <laughs> like, it just takes out all the tension that was so masterfully done a few scenes earlier. I think that depends on if you're um, scared of monkeys. Because I was watching that, especially I felt so struck by it this time because nowadays so many animals in movies are CGI, mm -hmm. which to me just removes any believability from any animal. I'm like, oh, a tiger's attacking you. No, it's not. Shut up. Whereas the baboons <laughs> in this being real was so scary to me. I was looking at them like, oh, baboons are so scary looking. They've got scary faces. They're very dangerous, and so apparently, I mean, this is also more trivia for you. They uh, couldn't get the baboons to attack the car at first. They put a baby baboon in the back seat with a trainer, and they wouldn't do anything. And they finally took the head baboon, King Baboon, and put him in the back seat. And they went nuts. And Lee Remick, who plays Mrs. Thorne, her terror is like legit real in that moment because they're really attacking the car. Oh, wow. So. That's always a, a you know <laughs> a fun situation. I do think they were kind of terrorizing Lee Remick in this movie. Yes. Like I think a lot of her, classic. yeah, yes. a lot of her terror is really real. Um, which actually, I'll just get into this trivia fact because I don't know if there'll be another time for it because we're just also talking about The Exorcist. Ellen Burstyn um, in The Exorcist got really hurt during a stunt, um, and it's like she's famously said many times William Friedkin bullied her into it, and like. Uh, bullied her into it? Like, bullied her into doing the stunt for when she gets thrown up against the wall and she's had, like, lasting damage. And so Lee, Re Lee Remick was like, that is not going to happen to me. You are not going to drop me uh, onto the floor like that when she has her big fall from the, the banister. So they did a really intense, like, optical illusion with that scene. I don't know if you remember it. That's why, like, sure. the when she's falling, it very much twists mm -hmm. because she's being dollied onto a wall. Oh, that so I think rules. That's, yeah, I think it's very interesting that she really put her foot down and was like, I am not going to be injured. But they still wanted to make it look like, you know, a, an artistic shot. 
So turning it into an optical illusion that way, I think was like actually very creative. I think that it was really good and it reminded me of like both Vertigo and Rear Window. Yes. And how those are, I don't know, purposely surreal, um, but they're so campy, strange. Yes. And I thought this was much more realistic. And it was It was a good, rather than just having the floor rush up to meet her, right, which is often how it looks in, in old Hitchcock films, doing that kind of twist. Yeah. And it does absolutely add to like the surreality of the moment of like her... It's just, I mean, it's such a horrible moment, right? Like, we, we see it coming. It, it actually is very tense of, like, him wheeling towards her, and you know exactly what's going to happen, and it's just so horrible. And she's already said, like, don't let him kill me. She's so scared mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. that it's just, it's a, it is a, I think it's choosing to do something that tricks your eye was such, I think was actually a very good choice in that situation. You know, I was thinking about what you said about um, him being just a vehicle, and he did remind me a lot of um, of the little boy, The Shining. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, just quietly being that vehicle, mm-hmm. and then poor Belinda Blair too. Yeah. I don't know how she lived with herself after that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There's a lot of. Uh, I think that there's uh, so much desire now to make little children actually really threatening and scary. You know, mm-hmm. there's like we see a ton of it now with like l- actually little dangerous kids. Um, but even thinking about like, you know, even pet cemeteries a little bit that way, mm-hmm. but that little horrifying child, he is just a, you know, a vehicle for the, the, the big bad in pet cemetery. The so, innocent and yeah. evil together is more interesting. Yeah. I want to hear more about like really, what really worked about this movie for you. Cause, um, my last thing on this I'll say is that like, again, I think that there's two different, at least two different movies in here fighting with each other. Because when this gets really weird and becomes about prophecy and a quest to go to Megadoo and Jazeel and find Bugenhagen to get the knives of <laughs> Megadoo and you have to use the special knives, it gets so silly in a way that, again, absolutely draws me in. I like this weird MacGuffin and this quest that has been foretold, but that's really not what the movie is doing for the most part that's not the tone that's not the struggle this this very rooted familial struggle that's like more akin to amityville in its emotions mm-hmm. that's not really what the movie's doing and then it becomes about an international quest about a guy and a photographer who has stuck his nose in here and it's so crazy and i think that that these elements are in conflict with one another and i wish that it was again my taste i wish it was more in the campy department it was more Lauren and Garish. What like really worked as the person for whom this worked the most? What worked about this for you, Liz? I don't know. I feel like all the things you're saying, I'm like, yeah, that's that's what that's what I liked about it. The <laughs> conflict? Yeah, yeah. Cause I think that like I said, I am really intrigued by this um concept the whole time of that's exactly what exactly what you said. That that's what's happening is that Gregory Peck is just getting sent from person to person, uh in, including the photographer, including the priest, and that once you kind of get going on this sort of paranoid track, it's really hard to get off of it. All coincidences start feeding into the narrative and all, you know, he's just got people on all sides telling him what works for this narrative. And that once he gets started, there's never a point where he's like, oh, I should really take a step back and look at this 
from a really like, you know, there's no one, there's no one telling him like, hey, maybe you should slow down. Everybody is just feeding into this story. So you see this more as like an under the Silver Lake style guy is just, every, every paranoia he has is being validated at every turn because he decides that it is. Yes. Yes, very much so. That like, if he ever actually really looked at his child, which I guess he kind of like tries to do and is stopped by like Mrs. Baylock. Yeah. Um, and I think what's also interesting is that it's, what's also hard to say is that like, is the Antichrist real is also a different question. That's like, is there an Antichrist somewhere? Like, this may be a little bit off tangent, but there's a book called Good Omens that is very, very much like uh, a follower of this story. That is, uh, there's a there's a lot in that book that is based off of information in the Omen and jokes about the Omen. And there is a switch in that. Like that's what happens. That's the that's the premise of that book is that they have the Antichrist and they have a normal boy and they're supposed to switch them so that the president gets the Antichrist and the. Um, Regular little family gets the little book, but they switch them. So they're, they're, they are in fact grooming who they think the Antichrist is the whole time. And then he's not the Antichrist. So like, you sort of wonder if that could also be part of this movie of like, are these people who are supposed to be grooming the Antichrist, they believe in it and, and it is real, but this little boy isn't necessarily. He does have the 666 birthmark. So does the other priest who is against the situation. Which is like, that's, that's a confusing element is like, why does this priest who is, who encourages him to kill Damien, why does he have a 666 birthmark? I wondered that too. Yeah. So I think there's questions. I, th- I don't think this movie's answering them. I, I think it's fun. Did this movie popularize 666 as a number of the beast? Yes. Like saying? And that was yes. there. They were promoting it like you wouldn't believe. Because <laughs> his birthday is June 6th, right? And then. Yes. I remember the Omen remake was June 6th, 2006. Yes. Which like, th- this movie. Uh, this, the marketing of this movie, they were trying. They were pushing so many things. They loved the 666 thing. They actually, at one test screening, sent everybody into the theater. And then when everybody came out, they had plastered 666s all over it. So everybody came out and was like, ah! <laughs> Which is fun. And then they they tried to lean into the curse stuff from this movie like you wouldn't believe. Oh, this like, also came out on June 6th. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they tried to really, like, they tried to push a lot of the curse stuff. Um, Richard Donner was like, so many weird things happened to me on the set of this movie. And they were, they're told these stories about how Gregory Peck and Donner took separate flights, but both of them got struck by lightning. And there's all, they were like, oh, the zookeeper at the zoo got killed. None of this is, it's, it's possible none of this is true. There's a very specific story of when Gregory Peck was going to fly back from Israel, um, he was supposed to get on a plane. He ended up not getting on that plane that they rented for him. A group of Japanese businessmen rented it instead, and then the plane crashed and they all died. Wow. Uh, unsubstantiated. But but that was the narrative they were pushing very, very much, was like, cursed movie, if you see it, you could be cursed too. Like, they really, really, really wanted to push that same kind of, like, poltergeist curse, exorcist curse uh, in the production and, like, marketing of this movie. But one of my favorite stories about that um, is that this film was originally going to be called The Birthmark, speaking of birthmarks. Yeah. Um, And they were filming a lot of it in these Italian maternity wards. And they would put up signs saying filming The Birthmark. And a lot of the women patients and maternity patients were like, don't mention birthmarks because that's bad luck. Like you will bring bad luck to our babies if you put up signs about birthmarks in our maternity wards. And so they ended up putting signs that said filming the omen 
for a temporary measure, and then but then that ended up being the name. So it gets very funny that just it's like they wanted to call it the birthmark, and these Italian mothers were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is very bad luck for us. So that is a fun story. I like um, movie movie naming conventions like that. So just a lot of fun lore around this movie that I like. This is so much more deep than I ever would have imagined. <laughs> I think this is what's fun, especially about like, we do movies like this for the podcast sometimes, yeah. um, that like, whether or not we love or hate them, it's always so much more about like, this is the history of what we're talking about. And this movie was influenced by a movie that came before and then it continued to influence horror after the fact. And all of these movies, because they were really like, horror was becoming a, a, a different thing, that they were pushing a lot of new kinds of marketing and filmmaking and that sort of thing for these movies because they were trying to like explore what one could do with this style of movie. Which I think is exciting. I, I wondered if Richard Donner was the right person to direct it also because mm. he does have that campy kind of history <clears throat> and maybe that's why parts of it seemed really campy. Right. Different tone. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, The Exorcist or some of the Rosemary's Baby or some of the more serious. Right. A prestige director. Right. Yeah, it's possible. I think that you, you are all definitely correct that there is a tonal inconsistency in this movie. But I, and I think I'm, I'm probably giving it a little bit too much credit in, uh, in, in saying that those inconsistencies are purposeful to lead you down different paths of believability or non-believability. Like the political aspect and the soap aspect and the camp aspect and how they're all sort of present in order to make you feel differently about any of these things. You know, if you if we see it purely as like a political thriller, it's like, dude, don't kill your son. That's horrifying. That's so evil. But if we are leaning into the camp, it's like, oh no, that kid's evil. Get him, you know? I think this, uh, you're touching on why I didn't like it because I like my horror to be very serious and, and I don't like the campy. I don't like, you know, Halloween and all those sort of horror movies that are kind of... <laughs> can't be um if you're gonna do horror i want it to be really horrifying i think it's fair evan's cringing in the corner right now yeah. hearing you say that about halloween <laughs> just an example there's millions of them yeah any other thoughts on this movie that we want to uh do we want to talk about damien sure what do you want to say i uh i think it's an interesting casting choice they were really struggling to find someone I can give you the the you know the background. Yeah. But like they were really they they uh, thought about changing it to a girl because they couldn't find a boy. They were just like they could not do it. They hated it. Couldn't find anyone. And then um, Harvey Stevens, who ended up playing Damien, who came in with like very blonde hair. He's got like long blonde hair. Um, and he was they were asking all of the actors to to come at Richard Donner like um, uh, akin to when he is scratching up his mother um, when they are trying to take him to church. That was what they were kind of trying to emulate is like, come at me, attack me as if you're like, you're trying come to me, you know, get me. And Harvey Stevens <laughs> went right at Richard Donner, scratched him, bit him, kicked him in the groin. Uh, <laughs> like, and he was like, that's him. <laughs> Dye that kid's hair black and get him on set. So there was something that Richard Donner really, really liked about him and saw in him. Um, but I don't know that it was, it ended up being completely successful. He's a little flat. 
And I know he's supposed to be because that's the ambiguity of is this kid evil or not. Yeah. He's a little flat. His smile at the end really works for me. The last shot of the movie where he turns to the camera mm-hmm. um, works for me. But for the most part, I just think he's not really doing much acting. No, he's very like, he's just, again, he's he's a vehicle. Everything's just sort of happening to him. Yeah. And if if he's supposed to frighten us, it, that doesn't really happen. I think especially in comparison to the other kids we just talked about, right? Like Gage in Pet Cemetery is like... The most horrifying. terrifying thing you've ever seen. Right? Like, Danny Torrance, like, he sells the emotion. I mean, he's he's more scared than scary. Yeah. But he, like, really, there's a lot to that performance. I don't feel like Harvey Stevens was giving me that much. No, yeah. I think it's true. I think that you're right that his, I think his smile works at the end because he doesn't smile right away. He kind of looks at the camera for a second with that kind of dead-eyed stare and then smiles. And yeah. you're like, oh, what does that mean? But uh, I think you're right. Other than that, he's just sort of like, and it's always hard also with like the dubbing. There's so much that's like when he's clawing at stuff in the car and when he's like, daddy, daddy, don't kill me. A lot of that is 80 yard. Oh, wow. So you're not, I I mean, that's how actually that maybe I don't know that. That's how it came across to me. So like, I think that it removes some of the naturalism, naturalism of like this child actually being really afraid or being really angry is if it's like, it just doesn't feel like it's happening in that moment. So I think that's a challenge. Yeah. I think unlike The Shining too, there wasn't a lot of focus on him. You know, like facial shots and expressions. Mm -hmm. Whereas Danny, you know, you really see a lot of him. Yeah. Um, And so he he seems kind of passive, you know. Yeah, very passive. This is much more about (laughs) about Gregory Peck and Lee Remick and David Mm -hmm. Warner than it is about... About the kid. I do love the David Warner character too, also. I think it's like, I just love him. I just, I really enjoy him as a character and as an actor. Yeah. Uh, same kind of thing. This guy just getting really wrapped up in this story with no proof. No. He sees two pictures that have a line in them and is like, I'm predicting the future with my photography. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, are you? So it's just, and then, you know. Yeah, well, Gregory Peck is like, this is my problem. He's like, no, it's not. No, Look it's at not. this picture of me that's distorted. That I'm going to get my head cut off. And then it's like, okay, well then, and then you go do a bunch of really dangerous stuff. So yeah. like, yeah. You go globetrotting. What do you think going to happen? In search of special lives. Yeah. So like, it's just, you know, I really enjoyed him as a character. I really enjoyed him and Gregory Peck's little uh, adventures across the globe. I think it gave Rottweilers a bad name. Yeah. Here too. Although I think they actually increased in popularity after this movie. Really? Yeah. Which is <laughs> very funny. They were like, those dogs, maybe because they were like, that's a good guard dog. I want that dog to come protect my house like that. Mm. Wow. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's, uh, especially fair. especially the guard, the dog uh, in the house. That's just like, he's just, you know, he's trying to do a good job. He's just trying to protect his, his kid. I mean, maybe again, rightfully. Maybe right. Gregory Peck is just coming to kill He's his child, stab him. and th- this Rottweiler is doing a good job protecting his He's little like, charge. You got bad vibes. <laughs> you got bad vibes. <laughs> kind of like, like good dark Carl, right? Exactly. Carl's a Rottweiler. Who is that? There's a children's book that I read when I was little um, about a Rottweiler that takes care of a baby. Oh, really? That is—is is that not just the Omen? Is that story just not the the story of the Omen? <laughs> is this Rottweiler taking care of this baby? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to uh, be pierced from above with a piece of iron that oh just comes from the sky? Is that I thought I thought you were going to say something about decapitation, but um... no, we already talked about that one. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yes, let's move on. So no roulette because we still owe you American Mary. 
that we diverted for this, but that'll be our next episode. And October's about to start. Hooptober's kicking off. Yep, we're going to do Hooptober again this year. So I'm sure we'll have an episode talking about everything we watched for that. Mm -hmm. Moms, what about, what about you guys? You got any uh, Halloween scary movie plans? <laughs> I don't have any, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Liz, Again, how does this happen? luring me into watching these various horror movies that come around and... Uh, they just don't do it for me. I'm sorry. Nothing is nothing is The Exorcist. No. Perfect guest for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have a problem with horror because if it's too real, it really, really frightens me. Yeah. And I don't like to go down that path. And I even had bad dreams. And if it's too campy and dumb, I get mad at it and think yeah. it's a waste of money. That's... So it's just a really hard genre for me. It's tough to find the right um, median of that. Something that like is, does actually scare you just enough <laughs> where it doesn't haunt you for days afterwards, but then something that also is like real enough that you can really invest some emotions in it. And that unknown to me is the one that's the scariest. Like after I saw The Exorcist, I would go through and close all my little shutters <laughs> in my bedroom and then at the same time thinking like what am i shutting out it's like a yeah right and one of my prime examples is signs i love signs until they showed me the alien and then i was like out of there yeah you know i love the movies where you just don't see the demon mm -hmm. um it's more even jaws does that so well because the, the one scene where you kind of see it up close is a little campier. That happens with a lot of horror that we watch. And I have that experience a lot yeah. where I love the first 45 minutes so much. Because it is just that feeling of like walking around your house and things just being a little off. You know, just a little weird. And then there's always that third act where if you take a step back at what you're looking at, you're like, oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is this is so this is so weird. What's happening? So threading that needle of the third act where you can still be invested and scared is very difficult. It's tough. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Do you have a story about what traumatized you the most? I came to this Exorcist Shutter story. What really scared you off of horror movies? What's the the memory you have? Hmm. Honestly, I think it was Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> which as a teenager I thought I really loved. But it, that is a movie that stayed with me to this day. If I walk in a mall, mm. I think about secret rooms and traveling through air ducts to stay away from zombies. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really was a scary thing. Yeah, that's great. I love it. And I, that, that feeling, I, like, I was petrified by Silence of the Lambs. And mostly because I had a two-week-old baby at home. Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the worst movie in the world you can go see when you have a two-week-old baby and your hormones are like all crazy. <laughs> and I wasn't afraid of Hannibal Lecter, a little bit afraid of Billy the Kid or whatever his name was. Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill. Billy the Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Buffalo Bill. But mostly it was just like that emotion yeah, yeah. it's so scary. And that vulnerability you feel yes. of, like, something something bad. 
Yeah. And, and that's all it really is. And There's, the loss of control. You yeah. just nailed yeah. it on the head for me. It's that feeling of vulnerability and no control over it. It makes me feel so human, so <laughs> vulnerable. <laughs> I completely agree, and I just love that feeling. But yeah, I do, same. but it, it's because I don't live alone. I think that there's like a very, uh, there's that's very key here is that whenever I'm by myself, we, we watched, we actually saw a movie recently. I think we talked about it in this podcast called The Night House. Um, that involves a lot of Rebecca Hall is in that movie. Um, involves a lot of her being in her house alone and kind of just looking over at things and like it just looking a little weird and like maybe oh is that wall sort of in the shape of a face like is the sh is the the shape between the wall and the lamp is that sort of making something and like oh is it turning a little bit to look at me and being alone after seeing that movie was a terrifying experience <laughs> because I was having that feeling just like oh look, and you you catch your reflection in the mirror or the window and you're like that looks like a person a lot of that so I completely agree that it is a very terrifying thing uh, when that happens but I do love it I have an interesting anecdote here. Evan, do you remember being a very little child and going into Disney's Haunted Mansion? Yeah, and crying my eyes out. <laughs> and us having to escape early. We had to have the attendants get us out of the event. The thing that scared you to death, it started with when you were going down in the elevator um, in the tower but the picture's eyes were following you, mm. and that petrified you. So isn't it interesting that you had that experience at the age of four, and now you are a horror aficionado? Yeah. yeah. Cause and effect. <laughs> how, did, how did you feel, Liz, when your little brother James freaked out at the end of Haunted Mansion? <laughs> I mean, it's clearly a terrifying ride. Not for children. Yeah, I think I actually think both both of us were not really horror kids. Because yeah. I was I didn't start seeing horror movies until I was much older. Same. I wasn't. I was... Yeah, we, I was a very frightened. But then The Sixth Sense turned it all around for me. Have you seen mm -hmm. The Sixth Sense, Catherine? If I have, I don't remember. <laughs> it is, uh, I think, exactly what we've been talking about of like um, a movie that is very spooky in its first few acts, like very scary, but then really hits you with some emotional, like some, some really deep emotional beats with this mother and son that uh, makes me cry it's just every time I watch it. So And stellar child acting. St I mean, yes, child acting. Yeah. Just incredible. Actually, really, actually have a piece with this of like, a parent looking at their child and being like, I don't know how to help you. Like something is going on and I don't know what to do. Uh, also the Babadook. Yeah, very much. I think that like it's very thematic, uh, this like something is going on with my child and I need, and like I, and how to handle it as a parent and some, <laughs> from Tony Collette to Gregory Peck, you're like all really or wide. Or Lyrenic. doesn't really, no, she's she, not really worried about her child. She literally just turns from him. She just decides that he's going to kill her and just turns from him completely. To wit, there were a lot of options we could have done here for this mother-themed, now-screaming episode. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us for this referendum on parenthood, which obviously <laughs> is what this was. Thank yes, you thank for you. having me. Sure, thank you for having me. Uh, our next film will be American Mary on Shudder. And until then, you can check us out on our website at NowScreaming.com. And on Twitter and Facebook at NowScreaming.
Be sure to tell your friends about the podcast. Leave us a rating and tell a your review. Mom. Tell your mom about the podcast. Maybe your mom likes horror. <laughs> Maybe your mom doesn't like horror and will relate to our moms <laughs> in listening to this episode. We're a safe haven for all. Yeah. Thanks, as always, to Wes Craven and to Gregory Peck, uh, who took this role at a huge cut in salary, but in so doing, uh, legitimized this movie in a lot of ways. So whether or not we liked him or this movie, I am glad that uh, he was out there legitimizing horror movies uh, with his his mere presence. And, uh, you know, uh, he was guaranteed 10% of the film's box office gross, so it ended up being the highest paid performance of his career. Yeah, So because this was a huge hit. Congratulations, <laughs> Gregory Beck. You made a very good career decision, I guess. I'm glad the movie exists. I'm glad it exists, too. All right. Until next time, everybody. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. <laughs> <laughs>